It's already been a great day. See the, uh, the children up here, and uh, I echo David's words. Uh, it, it is such a joy to be involved with these children. Uh, Jan and I started this last year working in the third and fourth grade Awana class, and we have several adults that are helping us out there, and it is, it is just so much fun. I can't tell you uh, how much uh, we enjoy that. Uh, enjoy getting to know those children and lead them, we, we hope, along with the parents, to uh, saving faith in Jesus Christ. We have been studying through the book of Ezra. Anybody notice that? We are now in sermon number 12, uh, and this is part two, something we started this last week, and I don't really think we're going to get through all of the things that I see in this passage of Scripture, so we will come next week, the Lord willing, to complete the book of Ezra. Todd Price is going to be here on the 20th, Todd and Pamela Price, and uh, we'll be getting more out about that, but we love this family, uh, missionaries in Romania, translating the Word of God into the native tongue of some really uh, uh, disadvantaged groups over there, the Roma people, and uh, so we're going to hear from Todd on the 20th and uh, have a great time with that. But today, we're still in Ezra 9 and 10. You see that. And uh, we're going to go back, review a little bit. Uh, it'll be necessary, even though you were here last week, hopefully to, to bring some things uh, into focus, and then we will end with that third point primarily and then come back this next week, the Lord willing, and discuss uh, the other things. But we're talking about faithfulness, the faithfulness that we as God's covenant people are supposed to have in so many different areas. But you see, as we will just in a few moments, that, that Ezra is going to really zero in on one particular area as a, as, as a symbol of faithfulness or faithlessness to God. And then we're going to see uh, what I believe is one of the richest pictures of intercession that we ought to seek to, to emulate uh, as followers of Christ in, in the intercession of Ezra, but also at points, as we've talked about, all through the Old Testament, we'll find pictures, we'll find things that point ultimately to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Christ, and how that uh, the... Uh, the prayer of Ezra does that. So hang on to your hats. We've got a lot to cover today. We need the Lord's help. We've got the Word of God. We need the help of the Holy Spirit as uh, He will guide us through this. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank You for the incredible uh, privilege that I have of, of every week digging deep into Your Word, and uh, as well as studying Your Word and reading it through the week to really uh, uh, take time and, and drill down. And Lord, what we don't want to do is add anything to what is uh, in your word, but Lord, we don't ever want to leave anything out. And so help me to be um, uh, truthful and, and accurate to the text and to apply it specifically and strictly to our own lives personally and perhaps uh, the lives as Christians that we're living in, in this culture. And so we thank you for what you will do. I'm confident, Lord, it's not about uh, people liking or not liking the sermon. It's about the Word getting into our hearts and bringing change. 
life transformation. And that's what we pray will happen as a result of our being here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump in. You're in Ezra chapter 9. Uh, we're going to read a representative portion of Scripture, starting with verse 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2, drop down to verse 7, and we'll pick that up because here, here is the first point. As a reminder, faithfulness to God means that we, this is covenant people now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is really not going to it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. It, it, it may be offensive to you. But, but this is something that we as children of God, as the covenant people of God, even as Old Testament Israel, that's what they were, faithfulness to God is that we will separate from the world and its abominations. We are in the world, not of the world. Failing to separate brings Terrible consequences. Last week, we looked at Keech's Catechism. You remember that? It's an old uh, a set of principles. Benjamin Keech was a Baptist preacher in England. Uh, he, he basically wrote this so that, that, that people, primarily adults, fathers and mothers, grandparents, could take these questions, go to the Scripture, and teach their children, catechize their children about the most important truths in the Bible. So, he asks questions and he gives answers. And the very first question that Benjamin Keach in, in Keach's catechism asked was this. Who is the first and best of beings? Now, sadly, in our culture, outside of the body of Christ and maybe sometimes creeping into the body of Christ, there are people who would say, that's easy, that's me. I am the first. I am the best of beings. Well, that's the way we live sometimes. That's the way the world primarily lives. But no, here's what the Bible says. Who is the first and best of beings? Say it with me, please. God is the first and best of beings. Now, he goes to question two, which is question one in some of the other catechisms. But unless you have, get this, question one down, this is not going to really find its place in your heart. And if you have number one down, who is the first and best of beings, God is the first and best of beings, then the answer to the second question is really a no-brainer. If God really is the first, if He is the best of beings, then what is my chief end? What do I live for? What do you live for? Whether you are the ripe young age and you, you're listening and you're multitasking, some of you kids are, and you're listening to Pastor Marty, but you're also doing some other things, but here's what you know and your parents have taught you this, your chief end is to glorify God, to glorify God, oh, wait, and enjoy Him. That's something that, that sometimes we've lost in church life. To glorify God is to enjoy Him. If you're born again, if you're not, it's going to be the most miserable thing in the world to try to do. If God is the best, then to live for Him, to live for Him from the cradle to the grave is the best thing. To live for His glory, to live to enjoy Him. And so here's the question growing out of what we were just saying, 
out of Ezra chapter 9. We'll read this in just a second. It's also a no-brainer. If you've been born again and you know that God is the first and the best of beings, how could you not separate yourself from everything out there that is not God? Like I said last week, I'm not not telling you to quit your job and move up on a mountain, become a monk, or, or whatever the case may be. But in your life, in your everyday life, as you drive to work, as you get gas, as you go to the grocery store, as you relate, you have those relationships in your life, your husband and wife, your family, and, and school, and all of the rest of that. Glorify God, glorify God, glorify God. That's what it is all about. And, and what Ezra is trying to say, how in the world could a covenant child of God not separate himself or herself from everything else? And please hear how, uh, what I'm about to say. That is garbage compared to knowing and loving God. Amen. But that's what had happened to Israel. And that's what happens to us. Let's read Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me. Now remember, he's back in the land. He's, he's brought some stuff, you know, a lot of money to beautify the temple, their place of worship. This is all symbolic of what is to come. But, but here we are. This is a historical picture of what happened toward the end of the, um, uh, the, the, the nation of, of Judah. And uh, so here he is. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel, this is the covenant people of God, overlay this on the church, the people of Israel and, look at this, the priests and the Levites, in other words, the leaders, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And then he just clicks off a few names. This is not exclusive. Okay, there are other names, but he mentions the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. How have they been unfaithful? Okay, what is the key mark of their lack of faithfulness? And this will shock you. Maybe. Maybe not. The one thing that he points to, and there were probably a number of things. Remember, there are ten commandments that tell us the character of God and by which we are supposed to live. But this verse 2 where it says, for, it gives us the reason why Ezra is beside himself. We're going to see that in just a second. For they have taken some of the daughters, their daughters, the people of the lands, for to be wives for themselves and their sons. They're just passing it down. It's a generational thing. So that the holy race, that's the Jews through which the Messiah will come, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands and this faithfulness, in this faithfulness, watch this again, this is shocking, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. The preachers have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself. Excuse me, I just read that. Let's go down, drop down to verse 7, okay? 
We've skipped a lot because this, this begins, verse 3 begins the prayer of Ezra that we'll come to in a minute. But look at verse 7, the consequences. From the days our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given, watch this, to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. Here was the nation of Israel delivered out of bondage. What got them there was their unfaithfulness to God. And guess what? They're doing the exact same thing. You're back in bondage. Now, I realize that in preaching, in teaching, it is not popular to point out sin. It's easier to preach and say we rather than you. It's a lot easier to do that. But we need to make this up close and personal. And I've been challenged sometimes by saying, Pastor, it is unloving to point out people's sins. In fact, there's a very, very popular preacher who said that. Biggest church in America, I think. It's unloving to point out people's sin. And yet... Isn't it the most loving thing to do if someone is moving in a way that is destruction, that is destructive, to point it out? We don't rejoice in wrongdoing. We can't. We rejoice with the truth. And if you're walking along, if you're walking along a path, and I know that up ahead is a, is a trap like they used to do in Vietnam, and it looks like a piece of grass, but it's really a pit in which they put sharpened stakes. And I know that that trap is there, and I don't warn you, I have not been loving to you. Proverbs 14, 12. And this is why, now remember, and I'm going to come back to this. Ezra is talking to God's people, not the folks out there. And so in the book of Proverbs, it, it, it applies to us, to you and to me, and there is, there is a way, students, please listen to me. And when you're young and you don't have the, the you, you may have the Word of God because you were taught it, you've got the Spirit of God living in you, but you do not have the experience that perhaps older people do who should know better, there is a way that will feel right. But unless you balance it with the Word of God, it's destruction. It's destruction. It's that pit filled with stakes. And so what Ezra wants to do and what we want to do, what I want to do is just say, this is what Ezra is doing and this is what we need to do to the congregation here at Heritage Baptist Church and those of you visiting with us, no matter where you go to church, and those of you at home and those of you in the comments. There's another church that kind of meets in the commons. The doors are closed. That's okay. That's okay. You're hearing me on the monitor. And so th this is what we're, we're trying to do. Wherever you are is give that loving, encouraging warning that there is a way and God defines the way. Now, this struck me. I, several things out of this passage struck me. And... Uh, 
this, this is, uh, there's an old saying, the one who loves you the most, you might want to write this down. The one who loves you the most is the one who will tell you the most truth about yourself. Okay? So if you are one of those, you think you've got it all going on and there's no problems and all that, and somebody who really, really, really loves you, and they approach you in a very loving, kind, or maybe a firm way, that person really, it may get under your skin, but that person really may love you the most because they're telling you the most truth about yourself. I remember in one of the churches I served, and I, I, I can get an idea from Scripture, and I can just, I can park on that idea. And so we were in a discussion about uh, certain ways to do things, and this was one of those third-level things that really wasn't, we have a way of evaluating what's really important. We've got the first level, the first tier, five solos, apostles, creed. Then you've got the second tier. And then you've got third tier stuff that you, know, you really shouldn't divide over. And this was one of those things. But I was holding my ground. No, I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't doing that. I, I, wasn't, I was being appropriately humble, I think. But one of the ladies, and I love her to death, and she knew she could get away with this because she loved me. And I was saying, I'm standing on Scripture. And she said, Pastor, you're just being bullheaded. She smiled. I said, Linda, Linda Patterson. And I, you know, I said, Linda, you are right. Here's the thing that struck me. No leader is above correction. Her question. And it strikes me that the leaders were the worst offenders here. I thank God for loving challenges where we can sit down together and look and say, what does God say in His Word? That's called the Berean spirit. I'm grateful for a church like that. I really, really am. Now, here's basically what he was saying in this first passage. You've got to separate J.C. Ryle. He's a, a preacher, an Anglican preacher. Can you imagine that? They didn't have the same exact theology that we do, but boy, he hammered it when it came to talking about holiness. Right there in the worship guide, here's what he said. I can't summarize it better before we move on. For professing Christians, you can't be on both sides at once. Amen? You cannot be a friend of Christ and a friend of the world at the same time. Now, however that shakes out for you, and by the way, when I prepare these sermons, the Holy Spirit is just, just you know, checking little things inside of me. Has, has that become something that you are putting above following the Lord? And I'll be doing the same to you. You must come out from the children of this world and be separate, holy. And you got to remember, too, that, that, that sin is incremental. This has been 80 years since Zerubbabel first brought the, the first group back. It didn't happen overnight. Rarely does. Incremental. And it happened. So here we were. 
right there. If God is the greatest treasure, then sin is the greatest bankruptcy. That's basically what he's saying. Let's move on. Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, 14, the first part of that. Let me just read that. We'll be talking about being unequally yoked. We talked a little bit about that last week. It's more than just marriage. It's joining purposes with someone who is not walking in the same direction as you are. Verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. I'm going to to tell you, don't go to all of the commands, the, the, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, all of that kind of stuff. All of that was, I'll use a word, abrogated. But the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, stands through eternity because it's the character of God. So what he's saying here, how you can apply that, is that we have forsaken, when the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me, we have turned our back on that. You shall have no graven images. We've done that. You shall not take God lightly, the name of God, in vain. Oh, God, we have done that. You shall remember the Sabbath day. and We could just go on all through and click them off. And basically what he is saying, and now, oh God, what shall we say? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded. Now watch again how he gets this very, very specific by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering, the land of Canaan, to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands. With their abominations. I did a word study on that. That can mean a lot of different things. It'd be to your benefit to look up. What is an abomination? Multitude. But, but primarily two of the most hideous. Two of the most hideous in the Old Testament, carrying over in the New Testament, were murder. The murder of innocence and homosexuality. Now, those were not the only two. We'll see that in a minute that are listed, but those were things for which some very severe penalties would be handed out. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Shall we break your commandments again? And look at this. Here's the specific again. Intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Let's go back, do some review. Deuteronomy 7. You might want to just write that down for a reference. This goes all the way back to the application of don't have any other gods before me. And and here he says it, way back then. This is in the Torah. When you go into the land, don't do exactly what Ezra all these years later was saying you've done. Don't intermarry with them. Don't do what you're doing right now or take their daughters for your sons. Now, let's, let's jump up to the New Testament. Oh, let's finish this first. For they, here, here's why. And we talked about Solomon last week and how he was turned away, his heart was turned away from serving God by his foreign wives. So we have, we have, have historical precedents for that happening. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So we're, we're talking about serious stuff, this intermarrying the peoples of the lands. Let's look and see how 
the New Testament. We're, we're going to look at several different verses and define these like we did last week. Paul says this, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. How many of you understand that concept? You know, I started thinking this week that even though I shared it, I didn't share it quite biblically accurately last week. Confession on my part. I had a picture of two oxen, but the Bible gives the true picture. Being unequally yoked, Paul was using... Listen, an illustration that they would have gotten in their culture because they were primarily an agrarian culture. And what he was saying is you don't put a donkey with an ox. Why? Well, the donkey's nice enough, but it's not as strong as the ox. It may have a mind of its own, and you can just click off the different ways that that could be seen is a violation, and so then we go back and fill out the rest of that. Do not be unequally yoked with whom? With unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. I shared with you, really kind of confessed some of my growing up days, um, as, as a Christian I'm talking about, in college when I uh, came to really start following the Lord, and I, before that time, I dated indiscriminately. Okay? So after coming to know the Lord, I thought, well, hmm, I'm a Christian. I can still date non-Christians, and I'll call it evangelistic dating. It didn't work real well. And I realized the importance of what Paul w was talking about there. And I said some things this last week. For those of you who are unmarried, you marry who you date. There's a whole, there, there's a whole thing about dating, and we talked about this in our ABF class and courtship. But let me, let me just quote this guy named Vody Bacham for you and for you parents and grandparents who want to filter this down to your children about dating. You may think Vody is too whatever, hard. But I agree with what he's saying. Modern American dating is no more than glorified divorce practice. Young people are learning how to give themselves away in exclusive, romantic, highly committed, and at times sexual relationships, only to break up, and that's in their freshman or sophomore year, and do it all over again. Maybe not in our church. This is the culture, the peoples of the lands. We may not be able to change that, but perhaps we can go back to a concept that was practiced in biblical times, that of courtship, and see what the Lord may do with that. Uh, you know, I, I had Jan come up and do an illustration. I'm not going to have you come up again today. I didn't warn her, so she didn't dress for it, okay? So. But I, I just, I love her story. She became a follower of Christ as a high school sophomore, 
didn't really have a lot of leadership at home. And my parents were great, 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 great people with the Lord now. And, and uh, went to a Young Life meeting that was basically her church in high school. And I don't know how much you get out of those kinds of things. But she went to college and she, she really wanted to follow the Lord. And so her freshman year, she did what I did. She dated indiscriminately. And I know beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But in case you haven't noticed, she, she's really a pretty girl. Yeah. And... She, she dated, she just, and she realized. I don't know, honey, if you read this, the, the one, the, the, the second, the first Corinthians 6. I do know that you went to Bill Gothard, and he talked a lot about that. And you made a commitment. By the way, that, that's a leader that their leadership failed. But what they taught, in particular, that kind of thing was right on target. So her sophomore year, she decided that she would just date Christians. Guess what? She found that those guys that called themselves Christians, you know, not much different than the guys in the world. And so she said, and this is her testimony, in her junior year, she gave her dating life to Christ and he took it. She didn't, she didn't date unless she found someone who would be a spirit-led Christian and would be her spiritual leader. By the way, we met shortly after that. I'm not going to even go there. I, you know, the Lord was gracious, put a blinder over her eyes, and the rest is history. Young people, adults, our purpose as Christians is vastly different than the world. Okay, We live in the world. We work in the world. We're, we rub shoulders with all kinds of people who do not believe what we believe. But we're not to be unequally yoked with them. Why? Because you've got a brand new identity. Your identity is in Christ. You are a new creation. Ah, the old. What old? The old things have passed away. All of those things, those worldly things that you used to give yourself over to, as did the Corinthians... They've passed away, and, and all things have become new. And that's the way it should have been for the children of God living in the day of Ezra. That's the way it should be for the church. <coughs> that's the way it should be for Heritage Baptist Church. Okay? Trying to bring it in. That's the way it should be for you. Because God says it. I said a minute ago that this happens by uh, infiltration and here, here's what, um, and this is biblical. If Satan cannot get you with a frontal attack, he's going to slip in the back door. Nobody, I, I, I don't think, exemplifies this any more than a guy named Balaam. Anybody familiar with a false prophet named Balaam? Now, what's interesting is that there are a lot of chapters given to, to Balaam. And you read it and you kind of, this is the one about Balaam's donkey. Okay, in case you don't know, uh, he, he had a donkey that God made to talk, all right? And, and so four times this, this evil king, Balak, asked Balaam to curse the Israelites, and he tried. But God said, y you can't do that. They're my people. And so Balaam basically wimped out, and, and he couldn't do it. 
And we don't really see it from the story in the Old Testament, but we're told in the New Testament in several different places what he was able to do. Now watch this. He's talking to the church at Pergamum. And to the church at Pergamum, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who brought, who taught Balak, that's the the evil king who wanted to defeat Israel. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And that's what had happened here. It, it was just a rehearsing of the, 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 the deception of Balaam. Jim Eliff, look at that quote there at the top. It is impossible to be converted to Christ. Almost what James J.C. Ryle said, <coughs> excuse me, but a little bit different. It is impossible to be converted to Christ while at the same time loving your sin. It is true that anybody who comes to Christ will come with sin. You understand that? In fact, he or she will come precisely because of that sin. That is to be rid of it and its awful result. But to come to Christ while loving and cherishing that sin is totally impossible. That's an identity statement, folks. It is like an airplane trying to fly in two directions. Let's just run through this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, a parallel verse. And again, these these sins are not exhaustive. They, They are indicative. But you need to understand what Paul is saying here. You might, if you write down this verse, this passage, write down 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, which is a parallel which fills in more different kinds of sins, but basically saying the same thing. So Paul's going to go straight to an identity statement. Do you not know that the unrighteous, unrighteous, the the people who are unconverted, who are not living in the righteousness of Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, a question that I could ask you is, how do you go to heaven? What would you say? By being righteous? Well, yeah, except your righteousness is not going to get you there, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately. What will get you there is what? The righteousness of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. So rather than depend on anything that you see as your own righteousness being acceptable before God, you have to depend on His. So the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. (coughs) of God. They are, they are not going to heaven. And he says this, do not be deceived. Now watch this. He fills in the blank. Those who are the sexually immoral. Let's stop right here. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Thought, heart, lived out. Actions, right? Are you, are you with me here? So for me to hang on to some part of the old identity that I once was, and you can go through this list and you can go through 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 9 and probably click off several of these things that you once were. How foolish is it to say I can be a Christian and then hyphenate it with my identity being what I once was, whether in thought, heart, or action? That is the inconsistency of some of the thinking going on today. It's just biblically inconsistent. So neither the sexually immoral. What if I came in here and said, okay, guys, I'm your pastor. I want you to know that I'm a sexually immoral identifying Christian. You'd say, what? I'm an idolater Christian. What do you mean by it? Well, that's, that's my identity. Now, I may not act on it, but that's my thought process, and that's exactly who I am, and also hyphen a Christian. Paul is saying that does not wash biblically, nor adulterers. Heaven help us if your pastor walked in and said, I'm an, I'm an adultering Christian. No, we, we've rejected those things. Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Say this first phrase with me, and such were some of you. What happened? You're washed, your mind, your heart, your actions. You're, now, you're, you're living it out, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's, that's not a clobber verse. That is simply the Word of God telling you and me it is impossible to be converted while at the same time loving your sin. All right, let's go on to this third part. Man, this absolutely blew my mind when I saw it. First of all, it's an example that I do not live up to, but I'm seeking to make changes in my life to, to, to get more like Ezra. But then I realized, lo and behold, it's about something altogether different. Let's read that, uh, starting in verse 3, and we'll read uh, through verse 7. The rest of, by the way, from 3 on is Ezra's prayer. And just watch as he prays, it, it strikes me. Now, one of the things that strikes me, he's not calling on the world to stop acting like the world. Now, he will call on non-believers to repent and believe in Yahweh, but his whole thrust is to believers who are acting like the world. Ezra chapter 9, verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Wow, what a mess. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, it's 3 p.m., I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for 
our iniquities. I wouldn't have prayed like that. Have risen higher than our heads and our guilt, our guilt, has mounted up to the heavens. Had Ezra done that? No. What an identification. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. We, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. The heart and the actions of Ezra How do, we, how do we get around it? Is, that, is this not an example? Now, I had in my notes, and I, I added this this morning. First Sunday prayer time, 5 p.m. I've already mentioned it. And I thought, okay, Lord, what do I do? If I have the heart of Ezra, I will be with the people of God in prayer. And so I thought about laying a big, big guilt trip on you with the chance maybe that several of you would show up for our prayer time back there in the chapel. But I'm not going to do that. You say, well, pastor, you just did. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. Would you, would you please read Ezra's heart? And ask yourself, do I have that kind of heart of intercession? And this week when I studied it, I had to say no. How do I see sin? How do I see the sin of, of others? How do I see my own sin? Do I see the horror of it? The tragedy of the consequence of sin? I'm just so personally stunned by Ezra's intercession because I realize it is so unlike mine. I'm just telling you guys, pray for me so that I would become an Ezra-like intercessor. And I'll pray the same for you. I'm more like the guy that came after him, Nehemiah. Now, what's interesting is you think that everything's going to get to the end next week. We're going to talk about what did they do. Did they put away their foreign wives? The answer is yes. Well, that's a, that's a mess. I, it really is, but it, it points to something that is really incredible, I think, the separation from sin. But then the same thing happens in the days of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a great guy. He was an incredible leader. But you, you look at these two side by side and you say, boy, Ezra's response to the sin of his people was a lot different than Nehemiah's. Which do you line up with? Ezra, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and set appalled. I'm more like Nehemiah. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. 
Which do you want me to be, church? Ezra or Nehemiah? Now, Nehemiah and other things, standing firm against the enemies, come attack our kids and all the rest of that. But right here as an intercessor, I think you would want me to be more Ezra-like. I certainly want you to be more Ezra-like. Here's, here's the, before we move on to the last thing. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to the horror of, of your own sin. Begin there. And uh, then work your way out to the people of God. Maybe the Lord will show you that, really, I had, I had a friend that, uh, deacon in another church, and he used to call the kind of living that most Christians do, dipping and dabbing. Dip into this church, come to church, dip a little bit, then they go out and dab in the world, dipping and dabbing. And just, just check with the Lord. You don't have to check with me. Check with the Lord and see if this is uh, something that you need to deal with. Now, there's another thing. I'm just going to run through this. You may not get all of it uh, because we have to transition in a few minutes into our business meeting where we'll talk about the, the sale of our land over here. But there is something else here. You remember when, when we have said over and over again that everything in the Old Testament points ultimately to Christ. Now, don't try to make it happen, but just watch in things like this, and you're going to discover that this is one of the most beautiful pictures. So it's not just an example. It's also a picture of the greatest intercessor for us, Jesus Christ. Let me show you just a parallel and some parallel uh, remarks. Ezra was a priest. That's what it says in Ezra 7.11. Ezra the priest. Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Ezra identified with sinners. You notice when we were reading how many times he said, I, we, Lord God, I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you. He hadn't done that, but he so identified with his people. Jesus identifies with sinners. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Ezra interceded at 3 p.m. Why is that important? The evening sacrifice and the time on the day of Passover when the Passover lamb would have been slaughtered. Jesus died at the time of the evening sacrifice. At the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And after this, he breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Ezra's clothes were torn. It says his garment too. Not everything has to match. It's, it, it points. It's a picture. 
Ezra's clothes were torn and his face and head were bloodied from pulling out his hair and his beard. Jesus' clothes were torn and his head and face bloodied. They took his garments, they divided them into four parts, not his cloak. And he says too in Isaiah, I gave my back to those who strike. His, his back was a bloody mess. They plucked his beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head. He is the ultimate intercessor. And then finally, Ezra stretched out his arms in intercession to his people. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and cloak torn, fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And Jesus stretched out his arms. And said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. What, what an incredible picture. So even in an Old Testament historical section of Scripture that talks to us with some application about separating ourselves from the world, there's that magnificent picture that what you and I can't do, be righteous, Jesus has already done. Paul says he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Not to become a sinner, to be sin on our behalf. That we might become, look at this, the righteousness of God in him. Because he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So the starting place today is, yeah, it's good if you're already in Christ. Try to make the example of Ezra as the intercessor your own. But if you're not in Christ, then you're in trouble. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to be righteous. And the only way to do that is, is to be in Christ the righteous, by repenting of your sins and turning by faith to what Jesus did on the cross, the person of Jesus, not a religious system, not religious rules, but to Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that uh, you teach us through your word, and uh, there's such a beauty in it that try as we may with human words, we Wow, we, we just fall so far short of that. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would learn some things today to separate completely from worldly ways, to intercede, uh, particularly for the body of Christ in ways where people have not conformed themselves to the body of Christ. And uh, then, Father, to pray for those outside our church walls that they might know the Savior. And Lord, help us now, those who do not know you, to, to, to be able to say, this is the day of salvation. I repent. I turn to Christ. And help us, those who know you, to begin that internal search for those things that we need to separate from to follow you fully. So thank you for this. And now uh, we will 
sing a closing song, Lord, and uh, then prepare for our brief business meeting. And we thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.